Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Phanthropological, the podcast that covers the breadth of human fandom. My name is Nick G, and I'm a fun G. I don't get it. But today, we're going to be talking about fans of mycology, or indeed, mycologists. And here with me to do that are my two best friends, Nick T. Well, you know, as a known mycologist, I've never had a woman blind me with science. And Nick Z. I'm here hunting for the morale of the story. <laughs> Speaking of morels, mm-hmm. Z, growing up, what morels did you learn from your mushroom experience? Oh, well, I learned that they were a, not necessarily a taste sensation, but a texture sensation, especially when had with a little bit of ranch dressing, which is how I first experienced mushrooms at some sort of i don't even remember some sort of party i was at i think it was like a family thing maybe i don't know that's where i first had you know just the the old white cap mushrooms a little bit of veggie dip it was really really good and ever since then and maybe as a young fan of super mario bros you know gotta eat those cherries gotta eat those mushrooms i just uh just have always had a hunger for the mushroom so over time, it moved on from the white caps to the creminis, the portobellos, the shiitake, the enoki, the beech. So many mushrooms. There's a world of mushrooms, and they're great. As a side note, mushrooms and cherry tomatoes get the hell out of veggie trays. <laughs> You're taking up valuable real estate. <laughs> cherry tomatoes stick around. Mushrooms maybe go for something a little bit more than white caps. Or button mushrooms, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you don't want to confuse just a generic white-capped mushroom with with a button mushroom, as I learned in a lot of the research this week. But we're talking about past experience. And it's funny because of the vegetarian of this group, I actually had zero interest in mushrooms. <laughs> Certainly prior to becoming a vegetarian, but I was a picky eater. Most of my experience with mushrooms actually comes from a good friend of mine who has like some survivalist interests. And so uh, I think he had a book on his shelf, which was talking about foraging for mushrooms. Mm -hmm. And I found it really fascinating because it describes, you know, how to find out if a mushroom is safe to eat. And it's an arduous process if you don't have a field guide or anything like that. It's like, you know, pick the mushroom and how does it bruise or cut it? Does it bleed? What color does it bleed? What color is the mushroom? If you press it, like what happens with the spores? And I don't remember all the exact details, but I found that somewhat fascinating. Otherwise, I just knew that people who liked mushrooms, not in a survivalist sense, were just kind of an interesting edge case, like philatelists and numismatists. People who have an interesting, what I would call eccentric hobby that I know literally nothing about. Beyond that, it's just been this weird, unknown, known, unknown thing. There's a couple different aspects to my first encounters with mushrooms because there are so many aspects to mushrooms, as we'll find out in this episode. Mm. But my first memory of mushrooms is probably my mom's beef stroganoff. Oh. Where they fit excellently. And then also, you know, on pizza, one of my two favorite pizza toppings, gathenextcast.com, to ask me what the other one is. (laughs) (laughs) Pineapple. Uh. Maybe. Who knows? At me. So, obviously, I was playing with mushrooms as, like, a food. Dad would occasionally make a portobello mushroom, like, burger. 
and that was kind of neat because it was like meat-esque, but not quite meat. Another way is I have quite a few friends who don't normally do drugs that much, but they report that like mushrooms were the best experience they've ever had with drugs and and everyone had like an absolute completely great time i've heard so many people who don't do drugs at all people who normally just smoke pot or whatever and like they say that mushrooms are like the best high and going through a lot of used books every day (laughs) uh, at work i see a lot of mushroom field guides and i saw one that was like edible mushrooms on the left and like poisonous mushrooms on the right as on the pages as you go through okay I flipped through a couple. I'm like, these look identical. Why would anyone do this? (laughs) And so I was horrified but fascinated that this was something people pursued. I mean, I guess people aren't just like popping mushrooms in their mouth as soon as they find them in the forest. As you said, T, there's a bit of a a process to finding out whether it's poisonous or not. But the fact that you're dealing with stuff that's edible but also poisonous is like (laughs) mystifying to me. Well, we are going to come back to that mystical element of mushrooms, whether it is Mm. magical, mundane, or I wish I had another M word. (laughs) Mycological. There we go. I mean, by default, they're they're mycological. They must be. Yeah. So, a bit of a misnomer, because we're not really talking about mycologists today. We're talking about mycophiles, but I did find some interesting facts about, uh, I would say, mycophiles. There are at least five different subreddits regarding mushrooms, all tackling different aspects of them. One is about identifying mushrooms, shroom ID. One is about the drug that is found in magic mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms. One is about pretty much anything mushroom-related, whether it be growing them or not. That's just our shrooms. But the largest, by just a little bit, is our mycology. Hmm. I also found out that in Star Trek Discovery, There's a character, Lieutenant Paul Stamets, who is an astromycologist and is named after a real U.S. scientist of the same name who is investigating how mushrooms might be able to save the world. For example, in treating disease, cleaning up oil spills, and as I learned doing the research, many other cool things that citizen scientists are doing. Did everybody else encounter Paul Stamets in the research? I found this article talking about him. And then found a different article, and I was like, oh, this is interesting. And then it referenced him and a book that he wrote. I did come across the name a few times, but aside from him being a mycologist, I don't know that much about him. Anybody else watch his TED Talk? No. I did not. Oh, man. This guy, he's got, like, an interesting energy where where he's talking about how fungi and mushrooms the way they interact with the world and are interconnected was like a model for the internet. Like the internet was, was definitely taken from this model that already existed in in nature, which is a foregone conclusion. And then adds, at least in my mind, (laughs) which I loved so much. This guy seems to always kind of be uh, on the periphery where you're talking about mycology and mycophiles. Yeah. One of the things that we're going to talk about in just a second is talking about magic mushrooms and how important or not important it is in the mycophile world. And I couldn't avoid tripping over the connection because his obsession with mushrooms started at age 19 where he ate an entire bag of magic mushrooms. (laughs) So I'm not trying to paint everything with a broad stroke, but I just found that an interesting connection. There has been a lot of evidence in the research that I did that it's 
not that strong of a connection across the board, but I just thought it was funny. Other fun facts about mushroom fans and fandoms. We think that only about 5% of the world's fungi have been identified. Yeah, that was pretty gobsmacking statistic. Yeah. So I found I found something on the website Biomecology that roughly 1,500 new species are found every year. Wow, we don't know, like, <laughs> about mushrooms. <laughs> we do not. No. We do not at all, and that's maybe why the the microfiles are so fervent about it. The parting fact that I have is I looked up mushrooms, magic mushrooms, psilocybin, and probably forgot to look up mycophiles, but looking up all those different terms, uh, sorry, mycology as well, if I forgot to mention it, looked it up on Google Trends, and mushrooms grossly outweighs all of the other topics. But interest in mushrooms, in general, has been on the rise for a long time. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know whether it's because of the drug, probably not, or just because of a general interest in the multifaceted use of mushrooms, but hey, it's getting up there. It's just like steadily rising over time? Yeah, steadily on a slow, gradual upward trend. Hmm. Hmm. They are roughly twice as popular now as they were in 2004, according to Google Trends data. And for some reason, spike in popularity every year around uh, October. Okay, which is the end of a season, which is probably when it's easier to go get mushrooms. Yeah, around when the Fungi Festival takes place. Hmm. I didn't know that was a thing, but I'm sure we're going to hear more about it. Bet your sweet bippy. (laughs) All right, let's get high. (laughs) Oh, man. So, based on stuff like Paul Stamets said his interest in mushrooms, for what it's worth, his TED Talk was entitled Six Ways Mushrooms Can Save the World. So, he's not just being like, hey man, everyone should get high with mushrooms. (laughs) Incidentally, comedian Bill Hicks was, hey man, everyone should get high with mushrooms. (laughs) Just something that occurred to me now. After everyone has bits, he'd be like, again, I really recommend magic mushrooms if anyone wants to try them. But because of stuff like that, and because of, you know, what I heard from my friends about it being like, like a really, a really good situation to get high and to take magic mushrooms, I, it felt like initially because, and that's what popped up when I did a lot of the searches that using them for their psychedelic properties was like one of the top things on the list of why people were interested in mushrooms. And I think that's mostly a perception thing, but it turns out that maybe not. Yeah, whereas when I was reading about mushrooms, I thought that or food. Yeah. But it seems like the majority of people interested in mushrooms and mycology are neither of those cases. I mean, they might lie on a spectrum somewhere, but it turns out people are interested in mushrooms for a lot of different uses. One example that I saw, and I feel a little bit sad because I didn't watch the YouTube video for it, was somebody who had developed mushrooms that broke down cigarette butts yeah whoa there's apparently a youtube video talking about that yeah and apparently as we alluded to earlier they're able to break down oil and plastics possibly again according to paul stamets according to his book Hmm. and that they may be way too clean with the pollution apparently they've been around forever (laughs) i recommend the ted talk again he's talking about how no plants were like higher than two feet, but there were these gargantuan mushroom towers that were there before there was, you know, any any like animal life. They were the first species of anything on land. 
Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Hmm. I was going to say, because in a different article that I read, it was talking about the, the tree of life, how we categorize life. And when you're talking about that tree of life, we actually have a lot more in common with fungi than we do with plants. That's true. They breathe in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide as well. Yeah. I mean, a biologist or, or a zoologist probably can provide a better <laughs> description than, than that. But yes, definitely that fact. As an example of one thing. Ah, yes. <laughs> as opposed to most plants. Right. Which do the opposite. Right. So the initial connection, maybe not quite there between drugs and mushroom. Like, absolutely, there is a connection between people interested in mushrooms and drugs, but they're not exclusively drugs for getting high. A lot of the research supported, as you said, about mushrooms going way back into the past, talking about how older cultures would use mushrooms in medicinal ways and how we're kind of rediscovering some of those ways today, or how people would just in general have more knowledge and use of mushrooms in the past. And I imagine maybe some of that has to do with knowledge that we've lost as we became less hunter-gatherers because as you may not know about mushrooms there are some cultures of mushrooms that can be grown commercially and there are many that cannot they're just found in places they can't be cultivated whoa a good example i think mm. and this is why i'm not a mycologist is chicken of the woods not to be confused with hen of the woods not to be confused with chicken of the sea no there's <laughs> there's also a fried chicken mushroom I was very confused. I'm like, which one? I've had one of these. Which one is it? I do not know anymore. <laughs> but I believe all of those different mushrooms, they can be found in the wild. You can forage for them, but you can't just grow them in your backyard. You can grow button mushrooms and oyster mushrooms and enoki. That's why you can find them in the grocery store. Mm -hmm. But there are many mushrooms that can only be found out in the wild. I mean, much is made of like the psychedelic effects of the magic mushrooms, but there's now more progress in that you know you're taking them to get high but you're taking them to get high for a reason yeah like they may be able to help you quit smoking for example the other example that i saw was uh helping deal with pain in cancer patients okay was it child cancer patients i can't remember i, I don't know yeah oh okay but uh the getting high part is is becoming secondary as we try to find uses for the getting high instead of just like a stereotypical whoa <laughs> kind of feeling it sounds like well there's some people who just you know enjoy them as a drug and maybe just cultivate them to get high we're now like pushing towards using that effect uh for good yeah i didn't honestly search too much into this one but from what i'm hearing from what you guys found and from the little bits and pieces that i found myself it kind of seems like the whole Within the fandom, anyway, the whole idea of mushrooms as this drug, as this psychedelic, is just like one sort of balkanized part of a greater fandom. Because it seems like the people who are mycophiles, you know, think mushrooms can save the world, or mushrooms are totally delicious, or, you know, all of these things that are not related to taking them to just get high, kind of have to fight this perception, this public perception. <laughs> That anybody who likes mushrooms is just out in the woods licking them until they see different dimensions. <laughs> and so it seems like that part of the fandom is sort of just separate. 
white people. They ruin everything. Am I right? <laughs> yeah. Ooh, that particular uh, area is a spicy that, takes. That particular area is a bit of a cul-de-sac. It just kind of ends there. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of what I saw doing the research is it's not just magic mushrooms, you guys. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What I found interesting, even just like following this path to the end, is that it's only been a thing since like the 1950s. There was a vice president of J.P. Morgan who was an amateur mycologist and they traveled to Mexico to find these fabled vision-inducing mushrooms and then introduced them to the U.S. in a Life magazine article. Oh, wow. That's probably not the only time, but like it's an example where it was popularized. And then there was another thing that I saw in an article. Stamets obviously wrote a book on the, the kind of mushroom. But there was one called uh, Psilocybin Magic Mushrooms Grower's Guide. The second edition was published in 1993, but the cover makes it look like it's a mm. lot older. Anyway. People have been doing it for a while. Ah. Yeah. It is interesting, though, I've got to say, how like the public face of this fandom of people who say they're into mushrooms is of this drug thing. Rather than, you know, oh, it's like... I really like ferns and plants that look like ferns. You know, probably not going to draw a lot of heat for uh, people assuming you're just smoking marijuana all the time. But if you say to somebody, oh, I really like mushrooms, they're really like, oh, the magic kind, right? Wink. It is maybe the only way via mushrooms to get people's attention. Yeah. Right away. Are you sure it's the only way to get their attention? Not to grab their attention by talking about how you love these really cool poisonous deadly fungi yes Ah. (laughs) no of course not it's a way to start off a conversation with anybody and whether you can get them away from that to move on to something else is uh, another topic entirely but everyone can at least chuckle at the idea of the person who's into mushrooms because of psychedelic effect instead of oh i enjoy their flavor Or their ability to break down waste. <laughs> I mean, that's a cool fact. But why do they love it? When so many species of it, <laughs> all of the right pages in that book were poisonous mushrooms. <laughs> like, why get to do it in the first place? I mean, not to say that everyone has to go out and find mushrooms that they have no idea what they are and, like, eat them immediately. Please don't. No. If you find mushrooms, please don't do that. That's bad. Yeah. That's dangerous. Yeah. Make sure you have a good idea of like what, what you're dealing with. But like many of the topics we cover on the show, people just love them. And I think one of the big reasons, based on stuff we talked about on this show before, is I cannot imagine a fandom with a larger amount of things to curate. Ooh. It is the taxonomist's dream. <laughs> On the one hand, I was going to say, no, that's ridiculous. And then I thought back to when I was a kid and one of my friends in elementary school had these um, world fact books and every page was a different animal. And on the animal, it was like, this is the phylum and this is the kingdom and this is the whatever. And I was like, oh, it's so cool to know these different things. And I thought back to high school and I was like, ooh, I should make a fun thing where you can categorize fans into different groups. And I'm like, you know what? Maybe maybe G's not right. <laughs> maybe he's onto something. I don't think it's the only reason why, because there's tons of different species being discovered and like 
not that many people getting into the fandom by comparison. No, but I can see why people like that aspect. It's like, oh, this is, you know, a slight variation. One of the things that I saw from that um, article in Biome Ecology is why mushrooms might appeal to kids. And the idea is that you demonstrate a form of a mushroom and then you can show like infinite variations on it depending on its environment. Infinite variations on a theme, basically. Nature's jazz. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess we're we're used to seeing so many things in nature, like, I think it's wild mustard. Mm -hmm. You look at wild mustard and you're like, that's not even edible. But based on how it's specifically grown in different environments, we have cultivated many different things. We've cultivated broccoli and Brussels sprouts and kale and several other vegetables that I can't recall. And they're all the same plant that has been cultivated for different attributes, whether it be the stem or the root or the leaf or the flower. Actually, yeah, broccoli is the flower and kale is the leaf and Brussels sprouts, I think, are the stem. But like with mushrooms, you have a similar situation where depending on how, whether it's like hot or humid or the time of year or what it's growing in, you can cultivate different variations in the the mushrooms. Fun fact. All bananas are one strain of banana. (laughs) Cavendish? That sounds right. I think that's the one that we have before it is about to die out or it's the one that was about to die out and we replaced with another one. That sounds right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nature is cool, kids. <laughs> <laughs> I believe it was a uh, prominent scientist who once said, science rules. I'm waiting for the day that we can have Bill Nye as a guest. I'm sure he's got some things to say about mushrooms. Oh, certainly. So, in addition to like, you know, you can grab all the mushrooms and categorize them and these ones are for this purpose and these ones are for this purpose and this is a slight variation of this one and this is like a new strain of mushroom that we've never seen before there's like that sense of adventure and discovery yeah like you can discover a new strain of mushroom because people are doing it all the time (laughs) you know you can go in the autumn you go out in the forest there find a hundred different species of mushrooms and like one walk yeah because, you know, once you decide you're looking for mushrooms and you see like a hundred in a day, that's a pretty good payoff, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> pretty satisfying. You don't see that many birds when you're bird watching. Well, and unless you're on the Galapagos, you're not noticing the like minutia of evolution going <laughs> on at work. No. I think by the same argument of people being interested in mushrooms because of the sense of discovery, when you think about all the things that you know or learned of, right? Like whether it be... I don't know, history or English as a language or or what have you. And you think about all the work that would be required to make a great discovery in one of those fields. Like historically, you'd have to like come across some new document or have some new complex theory about how some events happened. English literature, I imagine, is similar in that you'd have to like find some text or relate some texts. But like you're talking about working up to like a PhD or higher level in order to make just the smallest dent on the frontier of human knowledge there's not a lot of fields that you can do that without spending a lot of time and a lot of money if you're lucky if you're in like computer science or electrical engineering maybe you can like i did some stuff with ai and i figured some stuff out that's a gross simplification but like maybe it's a slightly shorter path but mycology there's literally so much that we don't know there are no schools of 
mycology, there's <laughs> zoology and biology, but no schools of mycology. And as a result of that, you can be a citizen scientist and just be like, oh, hey, I just accidentally discovered this <laughs> way of, I don't know, like curing global warming <laughs> with mushrooms. No big deal, guys. Like you can you can joke about flat earthers all you want. And you should. <laughs> Actually, you definitely should. Because <laughs> they're like, oh, this is the way the world could be. Well, we're talking about people that can do real actual science with mushrooms that is not happening because reasons? I don't know. You could be the person discovering cool stuff about the world. It's not happening because mushrooms are too weird, man. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> but I also want to say that in addition to, uh, you know, the whole taxonomy angle and discovering the new mushrooms because it seems like that's happening at such a rapid rate these days these years i think it's also appealing to people because it's kind of an excuse to go out and be in nature i mean a lot of the the accounts a lot of the reasoning i was reading was basically like oh it's a great way to get out in nature and like reconnect with nature and all that and it reminded me a lot of the idea of forest bathing what? Where people go out and they just kind of like lay down in the woods and just take it all in. Except that with mushroom hunting specifically, and I guess maybe this is a potential divide amongst mycophiles. I mean, I assume that they all, I assume, is used intentionally, that they all go out in the field and try to classify things, try to find things. It's not like there are some mycophiles who just sit at home and flip through all the books and never go out and actually see them in the wild. But my sense is that instead of just going out and being in nature, when you go mushroom hunting or when you go on a foray, as they call them, in the field, it's like going for a very purposeful visit into nature. You're going into nature, but you're being very mindful about it because you're looking either for mushrooms that have been discovered or mushrooms that haven't. Or mushrooms that are delicious or useful. I mean, again, we kind of get back into the whole mushrooms can do so many things <laughs> bit. And I think that's that's like one of the other pieces of the puzzle is like, for all the reasons that we've stated, mushrooms are like super mysterious still. Yes. Because like, as you said, T, in terms of like a lot of academic fields, you're talking about like like micro progressions. You know, discoveries are happening at like a tiny, 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 slow rate. Whereas mushrooms... If Paul Stevens is right, and we've only discovered 5% of the mushrooms, and the 5% we know about are capable of doing so many things already, then, like, look at all the stuff we have. I mean, we know what's at the bottom of the ocean now, so that's mysteries over. Um, yeah, it's horrifying. Hmm? Yeah, don't worry about it. <sighs> Space is going to take a while. But mushrooms, we still know what's going on. Mm-hmm. They're super mysterious, and it's very easy to make some leaps or to find something interesting that uh, people haven't seen yet. But that's if you can stand the sight of them. I'm going to be completely candid here. I look at most mushrooms, and they like I will eat many mushrooms, but I look at them as they are growing, and they look really disgusting. It's so weird. Like I found at least one. A time-lapse video of a mushroom growing. You see it break out of the earth, and it comes up, and it looks like a mushroom for a second. And then it shoots down like this net, which I guess spreads the spores. It's weird and alien and bizarre, but 
kind of fascinating at the same time. Yeah, I, I sort of have that same reaction in a lot of the mushrooms, especially time-lapse stuff. <laughs> I'd rather look at a at a picture of a mushroom, but... Yeah, there's something... It's not like an uncanny valley, because it's not like they look like people ever. <laughs> but... but, like, they're imitating plants, is what it seems like. Mm-hmm. But they're separate from plants. Like, they're also mold and fungus and... All that stuff, which we immediately associate as being nasty. Well, looking historically, the idea that fungi and mushrooms have been gross is, at least in the West, a fairly old idea. I found an article that was talking about fungi phobia, which the term itself was coined back in the late 19th century. So, like, that's the end of the 1800s, so more than 100 years ago. Yeah. People were using that word. Which means it was already, people are like, this is gross. <laughs> so, I mean, people have thought that mushrooms have been gross for a long time. Which I find super weird because we eat foods like blood pudding, spotted dick, head cheese, <laughs> and all sorts of other I mean, gross animals. And that's just the British. Yeah, that's just the <laughs> British. Thank you. I was going to say, maybe not we I, exactly. Well, I don't, I don't, know don't eat la- many of I don't know when things. the last time... You had some blood pudding was, but I've never had blood pudding. <laughs> I meant or head cheese. Pe- people. Although, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. Generic kind of like North American cultural eating. I think the grossest thing North Americans probably eat is like hot dogs. <laughs> As opposed to say like some European countries where they use the whole animal in very creative ways. I.e. haggis. I.e. Greek kokoretsi, which is like. Well, I don't need to get into it, but it's delicious. <laughs> Google it. Google it. <laughs> Think gourmet deconstructed sausage on a skewer. That's more or less what it is. Anyway. Awful. <laughs> yes, it is awful. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I set that one up myself. <laughs> well, and part of the problem with doing research for a topic like this is all the research that I've done is in the Western world. And... Mm-hmm. So, obviously, what we're going to find is what people in Europe and people in North America think about mushrooms and fungi, uh, which is strange because if you colonized North America, you'd probably find lots of mushrooms like you'd probably need to or benefit from eating a bunch of those. Mm-hmm. But you're like, no, they're they're gross. Yeah. But if I had more of a background in the East, like in probably China and Japan and uh, India, like anywhere in asia they they've obviously continued to use mushrooms and use them in medicine and and whatnot and i don't imagine there's as much of a this is gross factor i mean whole books whole years long podcasts could probably be made about now why is that what's the difference but just thinking about it now just like off the cusp i kind of wonder if it's because a lot of those eastern countries not necessarily were like vegetarian but had a much more kind of mainstream vegetarian sort of trend like either for religious reasons or just because like i'm thinking about japan and i'm thinking about india here although i don't know how many mushrooms figure into indian cooking well like what you're saying makes sense like especially with the like buddhism in japan before mm-hmm. um 
I forget what event happened, but like people would start eating a diet consisting of meat. Like, yeah, mushrooms are, are tasty and good for you and can be used for lots of things. Yeah. Shiitake mushrooms are like a huge part of Japanese cuisine too, right? It's not like they're just some new fad trend that's come along or anything like that. <laughs> so there's a lot of history there. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it comes out of like a, you know, you eat what's around you kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And society builds on that. And we like jettisoned mushrooms at some point, except for specific <laughs> instances. Yeah. Maybe due to fungophobia. Possibly. But, Possibly. Uh, a lot of places don't have that. Yeah. Specifically, though, a place, a region in the West, quotation marks, just for the general concept, where fungophobia perhaps isn't a big problem. Poland and the other Slavic nations of Eastern Europe, where apparently mushroom hunting is a regular family activity. It's something people look forward to on like an annual basis, something they grow up doing. Mushrooms figure into at least one of Poland's major national works of literature from like, you know, when the whole sort of like sense of of nationhood and whatnot was being built up across the world in like the 18th, 19th century. And in the article by Natalia Matrak that I'm using for all this stuff about Poland and mushroom hunting, one of the points she mentions is that Poland has a list, an official list of mushrooms that are approved for sale. And when I first read that, I was like, oh, wow, that's really cool. That's like some hard evidence that Poland must really like mushrooms. But then I was thinking about it and I was like, well, surely Canada and the States and other, you know, North American countries, you know, European countries have lists of mushrooms that are fine for sale from like a health perspective. I didn't really look into that because I would probably be a little too deep of a rabbit hole to go down. But the sense from that article that I got about Poland's list in particular is that it's like separate from any kind of health concerns. It's more like having an official list of stuff you don't have to censor or something like that. You know, it's it's kind of a cultural thing, I guess. Maybe those are the mushrooms that are the most common or have been the most common in Polish cooking or use. But it's very interesting to get that perspective. However, fungophilic or not, Poland and Polish people might be. And one of the one of the other things that she brought up in that article was that a lot of the English common names for mushrooms, like destroying angel or poison pie, dead man's fingers, make mushrooms, you know, whether it's aligned with the, the facts about them or not, seem very, very deadly and like things you should probably try to avoid. Okay. Feeding the fire of things that are deadly, briefly. <laughs> I was watching a video on YouTube and it was talking about the death cat fungus and how you can find it in... California. And it was talking about how dangerous it is, how one cap is enough to kill a person. And so, you know, when you see things like that, it's easy to think that mushrooms are very deadly and it's because they are broadly. But I think it's also because, like G was saying, like maybe English speakers give them deadly sounding names because a lot of them are and because the mushroom on the left is is safe or inedible, and the mushroom on the right is going to kill you. 
we got over Deadly Nightshade eventually. I guess by making things from it that we didn't then call Deadly Nightshade. <laughs> well, like, tomato is in the same family, but it's not the same plant, right? Hemlock? No. No, I think I think eggplant's also Oh, eggplant. fun. <laughs> also, like, Dead Man's Fingers is so named because it looks like a bunch of fingers growing out of the ground. <laughs> That's that's not to scare you off. It's because it's what it looks like. That's super cool and not freaky at all. If you want to see a time lapse of a mushroom that's not super gross, that one's kind of fun. Ah. Oh, man. And then just don't watch any more time lapse videos of mushrooms because as you watch the basis of life, the gross, organic, generic foundations of life, it's just like creepy and gross and I hate it. I don't want to be reminded that I'm alive and other things are alive. Stop it, mushrooms. Stop it. Ah! <laughs> well, they don't even have to be magical for them to broaden your horizons, these mushrooms. That might be a good place to go into the conclusion and T, you can start or maybe continue. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I almost gave a pretty decent conclusion. Okay, yeah, I can start. I find the idea of mushrooms fascinating. I find their use as like this multifaceted solution to many problems really cool. But I don't think I'll ever get past the slight grossness I find at, at their weird fleshiness. I don't know. It's like if I didn't have skin and you could see everything underneath your skin, it'd be like, oh, this is nasty. I don't know why. I do enjoy many boring generic mushrooms and i wish i could find a place that sold either chicken or hen of the woods if i could remember which one i had and i'd probably be interested in in trying more mushroom-based cooking but i don't think i ever will because my partner has zero interest in mushrooms <laughs> and finds them gross so that is going to be a solo journey if taken at all. <laughs> it's going to be a solo journey yeah <laughs> like doing the research for this episode i f i find the study of and the people who are interested in mushrooms fascinating yeah like they were here before us and they'll be here long after us because they do not need light to exist what man nope they eat radiation what <laughs> huh again i suggest you watch that ted talk so this this whole situation we're in right now you know constant uh well maybe not constant but uh looming thread of nuclear annihilation have the mushrooms really been in charge the whole time yeah you know there's also stuff of like you know there's a fungus that like takes over ants brains yeah. and things oh like i knew that. about that so one. like yeah. keep that in mind looking at you paris yeah <laughs> so yeah I'll, you know I, i'm up for trying more mushroom based cooking you know keep it on that pizza it's a it's an essential part of pizza mushrooms and onions is a great start to literally every possible dish Oh. If you start with that, you can throw anything else in there and it doesn't matter, it's going to taste good. Yeah. But like, I'm seeing like the, the variety of stuff that mushrooms are capable of and I'm like, yeah, let's let's do it. Sign me up. This all sounds great. It's just like, I'm waiting for the catch because it seems like a big secret that mushrooms can do all these things. And I don't know if it's literally too many people are freaked out by mushrooms to want to investigate them further and there's just a small minority of people who are like keeping it going but as we can see the trend is upwards more people are becoming interested in mushrooms of it feels like they're gonna have a ton of applications that it never occurred to us mushrooms could have yeah 
uh, especially as we keep finding more. So like I'm inter- I'm interested in that. Like you know, they're not a plant, they're not an animal, they're a person, they're their own thing. They're also constitute the largest organism and living organism in existence uh, underground mm-hmm. in Oregon. One cell width deep. Yeah. It's banana. It's just it's 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 so alien compared to like so many other things we know, and that's pretty cool. But inexplicably, I I can't say why, but they like a lot of them also do cross me. Especially all that time lapse stuff. Uh, so, like, well, for making stuff, making stuff out of mushrooms, making food out of mushrooms, and especially like medical applications. Will I try magic mushrooms? Unknown at this point. We'll see where my life takes me. Yeah, I will leave the taxonomy to other people, but I'm I'm interested to see what's what's coming down the pike uh, in mushroom land. Well, if you had said pipe, I would have to say plumbers, but. Oof. You did not. Good thing I didn't. Oof. All right. Well, I have to agree with Jason Scott, an organizer of the Radical Mycology Conference, this conference that's happening on an annual basis where radical mycologists get together to talk about the future of mushrooms, basically. And I have to agree with his sentiment that mushroom people are typically pretty weird. (laughs) I think that if you get into like the the I don't want to say hardcore I want I don't want to say true fans or anything like that but like if you get into the the, the bigger mycology groups the 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 mycologist organizations in Toronto or Washington state or whatever wherever they're probably people who have very diverse interests on the Toronto mycology or the mycology society of Toronto or Toronto mycology society whichever one it is Apologies to that society. On their about page, they have a list of things that their members are interested in. And one of those things is postage stamps depicting mushrooms. I mean, I guess you're just covering all your bases at that point. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Coinage also (laughs) containing mushrooms. Yes, probably. There's got to be some of that. The holy trinity of mycologists, philatelists, and numismatists. (laughs) Anyway, though, and I think that weirdness is shared by another fan base that we've covered fairly recently, Rush fans. Ooh. Yes. Because in a, a blog post that I found, it should be in the show notes, the blogger is addressing the question, you know, how do you get people into mushroom hunting? How do you get them into mycology? And as was the case with Rush and Rush fans, the best way to see if somebody's going to be interested in Rush to get them into it is to have them listen to some. Apparently the best way to get people into mycology, take them mushroom hunting. Oh, interesting. So there's like that experiential aspect to it that sort of, or that seems to be something more than can be easily described, which I find really interesting. Am I going to go mushroom hunting anytime soon? Probably not. Not necessarily because I'm squicked out by the mushrooms. So much as I am squicked out by things like ticks. Oh. Yeah. But enough bug spray, tucking everything into everything else, you know? Probably swing it. I'd probably go for one mushroom hunt at least in my natural life before uh, modern medicine 
find some mushroom that makes people live forever or whatever. But setting all that aside, from what I found, it seems like mushrooms are the new plastic or could potentially be the new plastic. Could be something revolutionary that like changes everything. And that's fantastic. But speaking personally, I'm just going to keep keep shrooming on here. <laughs> I hope to someday taste a morel, you know, find out what that's all about. Get down with that chicken of the woods, with the hen of the woods, the one that tastes like chicken, the one that has a texture of chicken. You know, it seems like... And that fried chicken? I, I, I don't know what the deal with that one is. The fried chicken mushroom tastes like radish. <laughs> but, wait, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> Could people who find them just name them whatever they want? Is that something? Maybe. They wanted to keep a theme going, you know, as chickens, so... I'm interested in trying new kinds of mushroom, as difficult as the, the newer kinds might be to come across, since you can't really buy chicken of the woods or morels in your local uh, sobies or wherever. One thing you can find, however, is all of the episodes of Phanthropological up at Phanthropological.com or on the podcatcher of your choice. If there's a topic you'd like to hear us cover on the show, or you want to give us feedback, you want to talk about mushrooms you've found, or some more facts about how mushrooms are going to save the world, please let us know. Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, all at the NixCast. So without any further ado, we are, are going to uh, pop a couple shrooms and head on over to the most popular feature of the show, The Famous Last Words. That's right, the famous last words where we probably say something stupid before we do the research for an upcoming topic. And this upcoming topic is Digimon Digital Monsters. How do fans of Digimon feel about it being diet Pokemon? <laughs> See, the worst part of you asking that is I prepared a question, and it is that question, so... <laughs> but I will write that down anyway. Okay, my question has some presuppositions in it. I think mine did, mine did too. Chief among the presuppositions for my question is that there are still fans of Digimon, like that it's an active fandom. I can answer that now, there absolutely are. Okay, perfect, perfect. What I want to know is, similar to G's question, do fans of Digimon hold any kind of grudge against fans of Pokemon as like, our stuff is way better. If only it had come first, everybody would know. Everybody would be playing Digimon now, not Pokemon. So we all had the same question this week? Essentially. <laughs> There'll be some variations on a theme. I can come up with something better. What is it about Digimon in particular that made it stand above some of its contemporaries. The reason that I bring this up is because at the same time in history, according to my memory, which is probably wrong, we have Pokemon, Pocket Monsters. We have Digimon, Digital Monsters. We have a little game called Monster Rancher, uh, which I think yeah. by the time it came here was already like two or three games in. Mm -hmm. Probably. And similar concept where you've got this digital world, in this case the discs, having a real impact on the real world. And I believe there were probably some other both games and 
shows at that time. I would throw Yu-Gi-Oh! onto that pile, too. Yeah. So this is where my memory works. I think Yu-Gi-Oh! came, like, in terms of the anime, several years later. (laughs) I remember them all being at the same time, but that doesn't mean they all came at the same time. They were just all on at the same time. Yeah. So, from what I know, Digimon still exists today, and Monster Rancher is dead, 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 dead. (laughs) I'm ready to be proven wrong on that. Yu-Gi-Oh! is still alive in some way, shape, or form, but is different. Yu-Gi-Oh! is about cards. It's about card games. It's not about digital things. It didn't come out with, like, the advent of the internet, and it's not focused on the internet. So what is it about Digimon that helped it stand above its contemporaries and survive? Along with Pokemon. (laughs) That's what I want to know. I've got a part two to my question, actually. Well, you. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. Well, I'm also just curious. Have any Digimon fans proposed uh, a grand blending of Digimon and Pokemon? Is there a Digimon-Pokemon crossover out there that fans approve of? How many fans? So you can find a little fanfic. Oh, there's definitely fanfic. Yeah. Anyway, that is all the time we have for this episode of Fanthropological. Uh, Thank you for coming on the journey. Thank you for listening. And until next time, we'll talk to you next time. Goodbye, everybody.